The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, for decades now, I've kept in my office one of those page-a-day calendars that features the 365 stupidest things ever said. To my knowledge, they've never had to repeat. And some of the best ones of these come from sportscasters. And this week I got one from a man named Jeffrey Boycott, who's an English cricket player and uh, now commentator, who said, history is there to be made, but it doesn't happen very often. History is there to be made, but it doesn't happen very often. I have to say I don't think that quote belongs in my calendar. I mean, while history in the sense of things that happened is in fact happening all the time, history in the sense of things that happened that people will later recognize as important does not in fact happen very often. Just this week, we saw the armed forces of two nuclear-armed nations get into a skirmish. We saw COVID-19 numbers go down in Maryland and up in other states. We received decisions on a number of momentous Supreme Court cases. Our federal government saw several notable personnel changes. Statues are being pulled down across the country, and we still don't have baseball. Now, years from now, people will be able to look back on this time and tell which of these things really was important and which just seemed important. Lacking that perspective, we can only guess. And it is that lack of perspective that seems to be at the root of so many problems. And if we know what's important, 
and we can focus our limited energies and attention on the things that merit them. If we don't, we may be active, but extremely unproductive. Now, in our gospel lesson, Jesus tells his disciples that they lack perspective, that their fears are entirely misplaced. You're afraid of what people will do to you if you preach this message that I've given you, Jesus says. You know who you really need to be afraid of? God. Now, this word fear is often soft-pedaled. Even in our collect this morning, the original language of the prayer was changed in the 1979 prayer book so that we pray that God would make us have a perpetual love and reverence for His holy name rather than make us to have a perpetual fear and love of it, as the right one still renders Cranmer's original translation of a much older Latin prayer. I've noticed that every time this word fear pops up in Scripture in referring to the posture people ought to have toward God, people, often my colleagues, fall all over themselves to say, well, it doesn't really mean you're supposed to be afraid of God. No, no, no. It means you're supposed to have a lot of respect for Him. But the most important thing is that you love God, and it's hard to love somebody you're afraid of. Great commentator Dale Bruner wrote about this verse, the tender-minded message that the Father of Jesus Christ is not to be feared but loved is a pious fraud. Dozens of times in the Old Testament, God's people are specifically commanded to fear Him. Jesus does not tell His disciples, yeah, that's not really what they meant. No. He tells them, you're afraid of the wrong things. That fear you're giving to people you're afraid of belongs to God. You may remember the old Rodgers and Hammerstein tune from The King and I, I Whistle a Happy Tune, which has the lyrics. I will recite them. I will not sing them. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. And then goes on to say, the result of this deception is very strange to tell, for when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. It's a cute little ditty. Gives the female lead a chance to sing it with a bunch of cute little kids. But Jesus is not into cute. He's not telling His disciples to whistle a happy tune. He knows, intimately, having been made man, that we as human beings are wired to experience fear. Fear stimulates the kinds of responses that can protect us from hazards. But just as maturity involves learning to love the right things, it also means learning to fear the right things. And it is right to fear God. We pray in the suffrages and evening prayer that we may depart this life in your faith and fear and not be condemned before the great judgment seat of Christ. We entreat you, O Lord. There, at least, the right to language keeps its spine. A distinct lack of fear of God is one of the problems Paul's addressing in our Romans passage where he says, so if God's grace is demonstrated in showing forgiveness to sinners, then Yes, that means the more we sin, the more God gets to be gracious, right? By no means. And here again, most translations fail to convey the vigor of the original language. The Greek here is megenoita, 
which is sometimes translated as may it never be or God forbid. I prefer the way the Greek scholar Clarence Jordan rendered it in his Southern Inflected 1968 paraphrase, the cotton patch version of Paul's epistles. Hell no. Now, partly Paul's annoyed because people are claiming falsely that the grace-filled gospel he preaches is just a license to sin. But he's also annoyed because thinking this way means you have completely missed the point of what he's trying to say. In chapter 5 of Romans, which we talked about last week, Paul says that by virtue of Christ's atoning death on our behalf, we have peace with God who demonstrated His own love for us and that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't require that we clean up our act first. He invited us to the party even though we weren't dressed right. He gave us spiffy new clothes, better than any we could ever afford. But none of this means that sin isn't sin. The fact that God solves our problem doesn't mean that we didn't have a problem to be solved. But if you go back to living the way you did when you had the problem, Paul says, you're losing out on the new life that Christ offers us. Again, that new life doesn't come without death. First, Christ's, and then ours, when we die with Him in baptism. Think about that imagery, by the way. Yes, there's a sense in which baptism signifies a cleansing of sin with clean, life-giving water washing over the person being baptized. But there's another kind of water in Scripture. It's the kind we find in the unordered, watery deep of creation, the kind Jesus walks on, the kind whipped up by the storm that He stills, the kind that the writer of Revelation tells us is entirely absent from the new heavens and the new earth. It's the kind of water that symbolizes chaos, danger, death. And that kind of water is also involved in baptism. When the person being baptized is submerged and then brought back out of the water, at least that's what they told me in seminary we have to do, what we're signifying is death and rebirth. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, Paul says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if all of this is true, and it is, then it makes perfect sense for Jesus to tell us not to be afraid of anybody other than God. I mean, if we've already died, what more can anybody do to us? So my brothers and sisters, at this time when we are faced with so many scary things, I'm not going to tell you to not be afraid. I'm simply going to remind you of what Jesus said, which is that you should be afraid of God. And that fear most certainly involves reverence and awe and veneration and love and wonder and all of the positive things that come with fearing God, but, but be afraid. Be very afraid, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen.